Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And uh, as the fourth turning unwinds, Ukraine has become the George Floyd of the world. I want to dig into that in a minute. That's my rant today from uh, HartmanReport.com. Also, Kevin Camps is going to drop by the risk of Ukraine's 15 operating nuclear reactors and what's going on with Chernobyl. Kevin, of course, with, with Beyond Nuclear. That's what's coming up today. Also, I've got a bookstore event, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. My newest book, it comes out next week, and uh, sure enough, next week on March 8th, next Tuesday, I'll be doing a uh, about an hour rant about it. <laughs> Listen to that. You won't need to buy the book. It'll be over at uh, Powell's Books, powells.com. You can sign up there, or we've got a link on our Facebook page for that Zoom event. So that's what's going on. So to start out, I think that it's important occasionally, you know, when we get lost in the scrum of, oh my God, they just bombed, you know, a, a children's hospital. Oh my God, you know, they're, they're, they're trying, you know, they're sending in assassination squads against Zelensky. I think occasionally, and, and we can get into that granular stuff, but I think occasionally it's important to step back and try to look at what's going on in the context of a much larger arc of history. The, the title for my op-ed today at HartmanReport.com, and I, you know, I write these every day, there's no advertising and you can get them for free, is titled, As the Fourth Turning Unwinds, Ukraine Has Become the George Floyd of the World. And here are my thoughts on this, and I, I think this is a really important understanding that we need to have, and it can inform us about what might be happening going forward. You know, uh, Putin is playing out his his version of Hitler's 1939 invasion, defensive invasion of Poland. And I think that this moment right now is the, the, the hinge, the apex of American history's fourth great turning. You know, even Americans who were preoccupied by the tyranny of having to wear a mask or get a vaccine are now, for many of them for the first time in their lives, seeing live and on television what actual tyranny looks like and how it behaves. In my opinion, Putin has miscalculated terribly. And his entire career has been, like Donald Trump's was, one of pushing moral and legal boundaries while getting off scot-free and being celebrated for his victories. 
and like Donald Trump's incitement of the January 6th violence made him unelectable in America. And, you know, take my word for it, there's no way Donald Trump is ever going to be president again. This error on Putin and his advisors' part could also threaten his hold on the Russian presidency. Now, when he leveled cities like Aleppo and Syria and Grozny and Chechnya, this was an orgy of blood and slaughter. But nobody seemed to notice much outside of this explosion of refugees in southern Europe. It largely wasn't blamed on Russia or Putin. Of course, uh, Bashir al-Assad in Syria played his role in that, uh, but not in, not in Chechnya. Um, but, uh, you know, people were saying, well, that's because they're of a different race. Well, that's not true of Grozny uh, or a different religion. Um, but I think the, the, the most, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. And in fact, you know, uh, dark-skinned people are having a challenge right now getting out of Ukraine and into Poland. Racism is real and it's still happening. But I think what, hap what is happening right now uh, with regard to the Ukrainian invasion by Russia is that Ukraine has become essentially the George Floyd of the world. And what I mean by that is that smartphones are now everywhere. And this is being referred to as the world's first TikTok war. And like Floyd's murder at the hands of authoritarian cops, it's showing up on tiny screens, it's showing up in international newscasts, it's showing up in living rooms all across the country and the world. And, and frankly, I think that going into the future, war will have changed forever, at least in those countries that are sufficiently developed, that they have, that the average citizen has a smartphone and they've got a good Wi-Fi and or cell tower infrastructure. Now, obviously, that's not all of the world. It's not even the majority of the world population-wise. But it's a hell of a lot of countries. And I, I think, you know, like I said in the piece, make no mistake, America, Russia, and the world have changed as a consequence of this invasion. And the power of autocrats like Russia's Putin and Belarus's uh, Lukashenko Alexander Lukashenko, are never going to be the same. Three times in the lifespan of this country, each roughly 80 years apart, the history of the world has turned on an event in which we played a pivotal role. And this fourth turning, this fourth era, dominated by, by personalities like Trump and Putin, but turning on the presidency of Joe Biden, I believe will be remembered as the fourth great turning in history. The first great turning, of course, was the American Revolution. There were no democracies in the world outside of tribal governments. And the Boston Tea Party kicked that thing off. And after the American Revolution, you had a handful of countries. I mean, France, the, the French Revolution happened just a decade later. You had a handful of countries that became democratic. The second, so this, you know, altered the world. The second great turning was our Civil War, the American Civil War. It was 80 years later. It was 80 years after the American Revolution. Um, by that time, down in the South, the Southern states had all become autocracies. They had ceased to be democracies. Their elections were shams. Their free presses had been shut down. About a, a couple thousand oligarchic families controlled the entire South from their massive plantations. They controlled the political and economic apparatus of the South. The South was no longer a democracy by 1830. By 1840, it was a complete police state. Not unlike Russia right now. And that police state then in 1861 declared war on the democracy to the north of it, on the Union. 
And the whole world held its breath for four years to see if democracy was going to triumph or if it was going to be the oligarchic police state of the South, of the Confederacy, that was going to win that war. Democracy won that war. That was the second turning. And after that, there was an explosion of democracies around the world when they said, well, hey, look at this, a democracy against an oligarchy in the United States and the democracy won. Maybe we can do this. In 1861, John Stuart Mill published a how-to manual for parliamentary democracies. It was titled Considerations on Representative Government. And today, all but seven countries, we're one of those seven in the world, use his proportional representation parliamentary system. The third great turning, 80 years after the Civil War, was World War II. When fascism tried to take over the world, fascism, the merging of state and business leadership, combined with belligerent nationalism. And the American-led destruction of fascism in both Germany and Italy signaled a new world order, essentially. In elected governments, a a free press open to the world, the creation of the United Nations. America herself became more democratic as a result of the end of World War II. We, 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 the GI Bill educated an entire generation, mostly of young men. Uh, the widespread unionization built the first serious middle class in America. For the first time in American history, more than half of Americans became middle class. We slid below that 50% point, by the way, in 2015 as a result of 40 years of Reaganomics. And then in the 60s, we turned toward pluralism because we were so you know, prosperous. And it's like, okay, how do we make ourselves even better? You had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So now here we are at the fourth great turning, 80 years after World War II. And what I'm seeing here, you know, David K. Johnson and other historians have documented how Trump was basically saved throughout his career by Russian oligarchs. And of course, Paul Manafort, who used to you know, work for the Russian oligarch in, in Ukraine, um, along with his former business partner, Roger Stone, basically worked with Trump to cripple America and turn us into an oligarchy. And, you know, we got awful close to that. But now it's all exposed. I mean, Bruton's brutality has mobilized the world to the defense of this small democracy. Americans are seeing that, that uh, you know, Brexit might not have been such a great idea, and it was being promoted by Russia. And Donald Trump got into, into office in large part because of help from Russia. And, his, and, and, and now Putin's fanboy, Donald Trump, lies exposed to the world. Americans now see him as a broke con artist, a shill for oligarchs, and a pathetic wannabe dictator. So I would, I would argue that when the dust settles, it will have wakened a sleeping America to the danger of politicians and a Supreme Court that has so rigged the rules of democratic politics in our country, or domestic politics in our country, that our legislators no longer are accountable to our citizens. Look at Mansion and Cinema. You know, America wants drug prices negotiated. Kirsten Cinema taking money from Big Pharma, literally hundreds of thousands, perhaps over a million dollars, is saying, no, we're not going to negotiate those prices. This, and of course, every single Republican saying the same thing. These hinge points in history are never painless. This is going to be difficult. But I truly believe, barring disaster, that this fourth turning, and turnings are always critical and dangerous times, that this fourth turning is going to mean a better world for all. It's, it's small comfort as we watch women and children being slaughtered by Russian troops and on tel- live on television. But history tells us that these turnings are very, very real. 
You can find uh, that whole rant complete with links to all the, every, everything I said uh, over at HartmanReport.com. It's titled, As the Fourth Great Turning Unwinds, Ukraine Has Become the George Floyd of the World. We'll be right back. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, I was listening to your opening about the four great turns in American history, and I was thinking much the same thing. And I would say that when you, when you say democracy prevailed, I say liberalism prevailed because yep. that's what democracy comes from. Yep. So liberalism won the American Revolution. Liberalism won the Civil War. Liberalism won World War II. And to deny that would to say that, no, King George was a liberal. It was the conservatives, or that, no, the Confederate states were the liberals, or that, no, Hitler and the Nazis were the liberals. So that, I, I really... Well, Ann Coulter tries to tell us that, but <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah, yes, of course they were. They were the liberals. That, that This makes so much sense. But mm -hmm. the, the question I have is that the Constitution can accommodate a lot of things, and I would point to the Supreme Court Associate Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote, I think it was in the Lochner case, he said the Constitution was not intended to embody any particular economic theory, which presumably means that it can accommodate a lot of economic theories and hybrids of such. Right. But I wonder, can the Constitution accommodate fascism? Yeah. That's uh, not an economic theory, but it is something that I think, like, the is the Supreme Court got us in, like, the frog in the slowly boiling water, that the more things that they say is okay uh, with regard to the right wing, the more it's starting to accommodate fascism because I, I, I completely agree what Paul. would it be like does fascism violate any constitutional principles that uh or are they going to say no it doesn't violate this it doesn't violate that um so because i look at i, I want to go back to just just for one example yesterday you were talking about uh the 80s and uh the the um Chris, I, was it jerry falwell and that whole right. the rise of christo fascism yes Right, Christo-fascism, and that Jerry Fall was, well, we need to get prayer back in school. That's when America went to hell. Well, let me just point something out about that. Prayer was, the Supreme Court in 1963, in Abington School, School Board, Abington School District School Board versus Shemp, ruled that school prayer was unconstitutional. Right. Now, get this. I want to point this out. The way the case is titled, Abington School District School Board, they're the plaintiffs. That means they lost in the federal court system until they pushed it all the way to the Supreme Court. That means a school board pushed it all the way to the Supreme Court to force your kid to say Christian prayers in school. And now, we can, the school, if the school board wants your kid to have a vaccination, oh, no, we're going to threaten them, right? <laughs> but in, in 1963, right. they can force your kid, and especially this poor Jewish man's children, to yeah. say Christian prayers in a public school. Yeah. You see how things have drifted kind of more towards fascism? I do, Paul, and, and I, I've, I've written kind of dancing around the edge of this very point, uh, at least two or three of the op-eds I've written in the last couple of weeks, and, and certainly I've written about this you know, far more explicitly in, in my book on oligarchy here in the United States, um, that uh, the Constitution does not preclude fascism. Um, you know, fascism envisions the merger of corporate and state interests. There's nothing in the Constitution to prevent that. It envisions uh, and, and is always promoted by um, uh, amplifying and exploiting the differences among people, be they racial, gender, or even regional. The Constitution doesn't speak to that. Uh, you could argue that some parts of the Bill of Rights speak to that, but it's, it's, it would be a tough argument. 
and, and uh, fascism embodies belligerent nationalism. I mean, those are the three touchstones from the you know, Merriam-Webster dictionary definition. And there's nothing in the Constitution about belligerent nationalism. In fact, we've engaged in it many, many times over the years. I would argue that to a certain extent, fascism is simply a, you know, full-blown fascism in the United States is simply a radical expansion of a tendency that we've been seeing coming out of the Republican Party since the Barry Goldwater candidacy and really put into policy by the Republican Party since the Reagan election. And I am hopeful that this turning, this awakening, this conflict with Russia, which has become fully fascist, you know, by any definition, that this turning will be the moment when Americans start to wake up to what's happening to them, which is how I ended my, you know, my op-ed today. I'm not confident of that, but I'm hopeful of that. And I'm sure you share that hope, Paul. I do. Okay, Paul, thanks a lot for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Denise in Eagle Bend, Minnesota. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind today? Hey, two pieces of information for you. Number one, Ukraine has been taking prisoners of war, and the Russian soldiers are allowed to call home and tell their family what is going on. That's according to CNN. Number two, at the U.N. Security Council meeting, there was a speaker who... Their family called their son, who was in the Russian military, wanted to send a package. And their son finally disclosed that he was in Ukraine and they were ordering, the Russians were ordered to bomb everything. Schools, hospitals, you know, civilians, didn't matter. 
right. wipe them all out. Right. And, you know, this is a big deal. People in Russia know what's going on. It's probably getting out slowly, but they can't stop the cell phone, you know, in right. Russia. Right. Well, they're trying to. They've, they've so slowed I, Facebook down to a crawl, but there's all these different social media, and you've got, you know, messaging apps like Telegraph and stuff like that. I mean, you're absolutely right, Denise. They, they can't stop it. And it's, it's blowing up in their faces. And, and uh, yeah. you know, I, I don't think it's going to be a pretty scene when it does. Denise, thank you for the call. Chris in Burleston, Texas. Hey, Chris, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Really appreciate you. And thanks for turning me on to Sarah Kinzinger and Gaslit Nation. Those, oh, isn't she brilliant? Amazing. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. My quick point I wanted to make, and I think it's pretty obvious, every general's always said that an army travels by his stomach. Yeah. And uh, the people that are being forced to evacuate their homes in the Ukraine, I think it would be a real wise idea if they can't destroy all of the excess food that they can't carry to poison it. And that way, the only food supply, apparently, that the Russians have is what they can steal from the Ukrainians. Yeah. So I think that would be kind of a uh, passive-aggressive type of warfare that might be very effective. It would be, and it's been done in the past. Um, if not poisoning it, then just you know taking it out and tilling it into the soil, which happened a lot in, in World War II. But the reports that I'm seeing, Chris, are that uh, the cities of Ukraine right now are literally running out of food, that all the food yeah. supplies have been suspended for six days. And six days, you know, a week, uh, maybe two weeks at the most, is about what it takes to wipe out all of your food supplies. I, I remember back in 1970, whatever the year was, two or three, when Louise and I lived in Detroit when she was pregnant with our oldest, and the uh, the truckers went on strike in protest of the of the raising gas prices as a result of the Arab oil embargo, and mm -hmm. no food came into Detroit for I think it was just two or three days, as I recall. But every store was completely empty. I mean, it was wiped out. And had that lasted for another couple of weeks. I mean, most people have less than two weeks worth of food in their house, maybe three or four weeks if you're pushing it on, you know, the, the rice that they've got stashed someplace. But, right. But right. I'm guessing the same is true of Ukraine. So I get your point. I just don't think that it needs to happen in all probability because they're already getting so close to having having lost what they've got. So uh, thanks for the call, though, Chris. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Uh, in the half dozen years that I have been an ardent listener and student of yours. I have never taken issue with anything you've said. But I believe it's, yes, but, I believe the comparison or analogy of what's happening in Ukraine to George Floyd, for me, it was a bit upsetting. Now, I listen very carefully, and that means my brain and my ears are engaged. I'm not just hearing. And I understand the context in which you spoke, Tom. But you see, George Floyd's own government killed him. And, you know, along with that, we don't need, I just mentioned this peripherally, you have, you know, in Ukraine, you've got some Nazi element, apparently, in this Azov regiment. I don't know anything about it, so I can't speak intelligently on it. When you yeah. spoke of the great turns, when you spoke of the great turns uh, in society, you are absolutely correct, or in the world. In all of those examples, however, you had Europeans basically attacking other Europeans. Yeah. 
So what what I'm getting at is that Africans have been denied access to, you know, leave Ukraine. And there have been reporters that have said that Ukraine is somehow civilized and European. So if Vladimir Putin had done this in Angola or Iraq, I don't think it would be the same. Okay, I got it. Thank you, Kenyatta. All right. Kenyatta just called. I had intended to put him on when there was a little more time and long story. Slip of the thumb here. Ended up putting him on the air with just a minute and a half to go. And my apologies, Kenyatta. But his point was that George Floyd and Ukraine are completely different. George Floyd was killed by his government. Ukraine is being attacked by an external force. And, you know, he's absolutely right on that. Absolutely right. What I was trying to convey is that we are now in a world where cell phones and their ability to convey the reality of what's happening on the ground to the mass public have changed things. And I think the murder of George Floyd was one of those turning points. It went around the world because it was recorded by that brave young woman. And I think that the war in Ukraine is changing things for the same reason. And that was my intention in writing that headline, essentially, and, and mentioning briefly in the article that Ukraine is kind of the George Floyd of the world. And that is they are they represent the crime that we are all seeing in real time or virtually real time. And so to the extent that that was my meaning, I completely stand behind it. If anybody took offense, my apologies, but that was not my intention. And, you know, lesson learned. I'll be more thoughtful in the future on those kinds of things. This piece, this is in the Washington Post. The, it, uh, the story just went up a little more than a half hour ago. Uh, Russia looks to encircle Kiev, raising concerns of siege tactics, Pentagon says. Siege tactics are where you encircle a city, and then you try to cut off their food, you cut off their water, you prevent them from leaving, you prevent any supplies from coming in, and after about a week, people start starving or dying or they, they you know, have lost access to medications and um, all these kinds of things. Sometimes a siege also includes, in fact, often the old-fashioned siege also includes lobbing bombs into the city to make life even more miserable. And that's apparently what they're doing in Kharkiv right now with these cluster bombs that are specifically designed not to take out buildings but to kill civilians, particularly children. So this is um, grim, shall we say. Uh, meanwhile, Ukrainians are posting these go-home videos and things like that. But, well, here's the headline. Protests against Russian military breakout in Russian-controlled zone. This is, this is, you know, frankly, I think where this is going. I, if, this, if this war is stopped, in my opinion, it will be stopped by the Russian people. There will be such, you know, Putin has already arrested 6,000 people. The protests in Russian cities are getting bigger and bigger every day. Eventually, he's going to hit a point where he cannot ignore what's going on. He just, he just can't ignore it anymore. So picking up your phone calls here, uh, Tony in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hey, Tony, thanks for listening to WHMP. What's up? Hi, uh, thanks for speaking, Pete. Truth to power, Tom. I just wanted to have this one quick saying. Boycott Russian goods, Trump, Fox News, and the GOP. The GOP <laughs> being silent. Those are your Russian goods, in other anymore. words. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And we've got, to, we've got to hammer that because the, the silence of the, the GOP is just deafening. And they can't, if there are good, ones, good people out there, 
they got to speak up. Now's the time. There's a giant. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. There's no, a there, there's because, a there's a giant billboard on the outside outskirts of Miami that says in in just like you know uh, twenty foot high letters G O P but the O is a a wreath you know like the old Caesar wreath and inside the wreath is yeah. a hand, hammer and sickle and you know the old uh, logo for the Soviet Union and the entire billboard is is Soviet red bright red. And so it's like the GOP and Russia are the same thing. It's it is the message. It's just uh, the, the the picture of it is flying all over the internet. I think I saw it over a Democratic underground, but it's all over the place. Well, I, my words for GOP are greedy, oppressive, power hungry. Yeah, I'm with you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you very much, yeah, Tom. Good talking to you, Adam in Phoenix. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I was just wondering how much racism plays in with the current situation in Ukraine. For example, if our people, the mainstream media is really outraged as, as well as the rest of the world about the invasion of Ukraine. And I was wondering if it's because Ukrainians are mostly European, white and Christian, whereas when the United States invaded Iraq, um, the world didn't do anything, and maybe because it was, they were brown and Muslim. What are your thoughts? I think that's a, that plays a significant role, Adam. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I, yeah. But I think the larger, uh, you know, that, that's sort of a subtext. It's like kind of at the, at the base of the pyramid, as it were, and we have to acknowledge it. But I think the, the more uh, immediate and vital point is that when we bombed Iraq, when George W. Bush bombed Iraq, um, TikTok didn't exist. Facebook was just getting started. Um, that was 2003. I mean, that was 20 years ago. And uh, social media, Twitter didn't exist. Social media, as we know, it wasn't there. Um, Iraq did not have a robust Wi-Fi or cell tower infrastructure. Nobody had a smartphone in Iraq. In Iraq. We didn't see the war. And we are seeing the war right now. I think, frankly, if, if, if Iraq had had the same kind of modern infrastructure that Ukraine has right now, and, and smartphones had been as widespread, I think it would have been a hell of a lot more difficult for George W. Bush to pull off that invasion. Tom, when they're talking about Ukraine, uh, it's now coming out that um, some people want to go to the International Criminal Court and uh, filed formal charges against Russia, and they're doing sanctions, and they're doing—they're uh, trying to get them out of the SWIFT banking system. Why isn't any of this stuff done to the United States when the United States invaded Vietnam, Panama, Iraq, and so forth? Why is it that the United States and Israel always seem to get a um, a, uh, a pass for because all their crimes? Because we're powerful. I mean, you know, it's, it's that—that's the the simple answer, I, I suppose. That, this is the, Adam, you're speaking right to the point of my op-ed today and my opening rant. I really believe, and uh, I, you know, I, time may prove me wrong, but I doubt it, uh, because the kind of infrastructure that you know, I'm talking about that exists now in Ukraine uh, exists even in smaller countries, you know, in Thailand, you know, in, in Cambodia, in South Vietnam. It's all over the world now. And, and again, it didn't exist when we invaded Iraq. It didn't exist when we invaded Vietnam. We only saw very carefully curated news that the Bush administration, the Johnson and Nixon administrations wanted us to see. And, and during the, the Spanish-American War, you know, uh, 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 what was his name, the president? Um, the McKinley's War, 
Um, there was nothing. I mean, you know, McKinley famously sent a note to uh, Frederick Remington down in Cuba, you know, get me the pictures, or no, it wasn't McKinley, it was a newspaper baron, right? Saying, get me the pictures and I'll deliver the war. So now I think we, as a consequence of social media to a large extent, we live in a world where it just won't even be possible for countries to do this. But, you know, yeah, Bush lied us into that war, and, and we deserve all the opprobrium that, that has been and will continue to be heaped on us for it. And Bush and Cheney, you know, need, absolutely need to go down in history as war criminals. That's what they are. You know, it's a shame that there's never been any accountability for that. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Marge in Galveston, Texas. Hey, Marge, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Um, this is about Putin, Ukraine, and Poland. When the Ukraine war started, Putin referred to some people in Ukraine uh, that um, are, are Nazis or drug dealers, and he's going to go and get them. Right. Many people like me thought, you know, I asked themselves, I mean, what is he talking about? Is this a propaganda, or has he lost his mind? Um, proof that Putin has not lost his mind. There is a, a history about that. During World War II, Ukraine had a strong Nazi movement. So did the United States, by the way, before World War II. We had 20,000 people assemble in Madison Square Garden in 1939 wearing Nazi armbands. There were Nazi movements all over the world. But continue. Yes. So this Nazi movement was not different from the other ones. In fact, they, they had a lot of uh, Polish people. They did a lot of atrocities with Polish yep. people, gays, intellectuals, anti-war people. And so he is referring, he is fixated in that time, and he's talking to those people, basically. The other... Well, if, if I could, Marge, he's referring to something that happened 80 years ago, or more, actually. I think it's more than that. And the current president of Ukraine is not only Jewish, his grandfather was the only surviving brother of four boys 
who survived the death camps, Hitler's death camps. And the Ukrainian people who elected Volodymyr Zelensky know that. And he's quite proud of it. He doesn't hide it or anything like that. You know, part of Putin's propaganda has been that there is an active, you know, right-wing Nazi movement in Ukraine right now. And yeah, there is a political party that is affiliated with nationalism and white supremacy and all that kind of stuff, and even refers to Nazism. It is marginal. It's about 2% of, of the politics. But we, again, have that same thing. We just had a conference in Washington, D.C., where two members of, of uh, Republican members of Congress attended a conference where they were basically, where the, where the host of the conference, Nick Fuentes, said, you know, let's hear it for Hitler. Let's hear it for Putin, or words to that effect. So this is propaganda. I mean, I, I knew real Nazis. I, I lived in Germany for a year in the 80s, and, and a number of the people that I worked with who are now passed away but were, were you know, 20 years older than me had served in Hitler's army. And these are not Nazis, not real. Yes, of course, and I agree with you 100%. I just wanted to also draw something beautiful out of this. We see now the same Poland is accepting Ukrainians yes. with open arms. And this shows how they have basically dealt with this issue inside themselves and have solved the problem. Yeah. So in other words, uh, from your point of view, Nazism has been uh, repudiated, shall we say, yes. in, in these places. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for pointing that out, Marge. I appreciate it. Sean in British Columbia, Canada. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind? <clears throat> oh, hi, Tom. Uh, I've been listening to you forever. Well, thank you. Thanks for all the good work. Just looking at the parallels of history here with the rise of Hitler and the Nazis pre-World War II, and their reaction was to the Versailles Treaty, which was, uh, you know, putting a stranglehold on them for uh, for all the damage in World War One. Yeah, John Maynard uh, Keynes I, predicted that if the Versailles Treaty right. was, which punished uh, Germany hugely, you know, basically made them pay yeah. for reparations for the rest of Europe, if that treaty was signed, that the governments of Europe that were signing that treaty, and we signed it also, the governments of Europe that were signing that treaty would be signing the beginning of the Second World War, and he was absolutely right. Back to you, Sean. Sorry for the interruption, but exactly, just for yeah. people who don't know what we're talking about, this was the treaty well, that ended put, World uh, War One. And it kind of put Hitler into a corner there, and inflation was rising, and it's like I'm seeing the same parallels here that with the sanctions against Russia and you know the world closing in around them, that it might actually you know create the same scenario where there, that Putin might. Let's say a year into this, uh, the Russian people might be, you know, so tired of, uh, you know, living with these sanctions that they might actually, you know, Putin might be able to whip up their support and they might be able to, you know, uh, back him and then take it us into it. Yeah, this is my big concern. Or even without their support. You know, I mean, he's he's in a position where he doesn't need their support, although... You know, over 6,000 people now arrested in over 50 Russian cities. He's going to reach the point, or the senior command in the Kremlin, and particularly in the military, is going to reach the point where they're going to have to make a decision. Are are they going to stay with this guy or not? And if they decide that they're not going to stay with him, it's going to get very ugly very fast. Sean, I share your concern, and I'm familiar with that. I'm very familiar with that history. And Mm -hmm. uh, having Mm -hmm. lived in Germany in particular, I share your concern. Sean, thanks a lot for the call. in Petaluma, California. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind today? 
Good morning. Uh, this is a, a frightening show today. Learning, but it's like the end of the earth is coming. Anyway, well, maybe, uh, maybe not. I mean, it could be, it could be the beginning of a whole new era too, where well, the world could, starts it, rejecting it, it, you know oligarchs and authoritarianism, yeah. and I mean, it could be a really good of, thing. Right, we're on the edge of a razor right now. We yep. don't really know which way. What I wanted to say was, we are the American population buys stuff. We're the money pit of the world. And as far as people going with Russia, you know, countries saying they're going to go with Russia, Russia's broke. They don't have money to, to buy things. We buy things. So we're, we're a profitable location for a lot of these oligarchs, even, who think that they can go along with Putin. Oh, they've been buying property from Donald Trump for 30 years. Yeah, and well, Putin is going broke. He's ripping his country off with his army. The army is going to either turn on him or they're just going to starve to death. He won't be able to feed them after a while. Yeah. And what if we started using some old World War II techniques of, of informing the troops of what's really going on by dropping leaflets and things like that that we used to do uh, with, with the Germans? And it worked. And we're, we can start being creative in our communicating with these troops because they don't really support Putin because they're not, they don't really know what's going on. They're, they're being kept in the dark and being used to be the bullies, but they're uninformed bullies. And we can start informing them on some reality yeah. if we're clever. And I think that's what we have to start doing. Hey, Bruce, this is, this is exactly what got Alexei Navalny poisoned and then imprisoned. The thing that catapulted him to fame in Russian politics was that he and some friends of his using Google Maps and property deeds that they dug up in Russia discovered that Putin had built a billion dollar palace. I believe it's down near uh, Sochi. And, you know, something that would make the palace of Versailles look small. And he publicized it. And he ran on a campaign of no more corruption and, and Putin is robbing the country blind. And boom, yeah. he gets poisoned. And then when he recovers from being poisoned, he gets imprisoned. Yeah. So clearly well, we that, is a, uh, that is a nerve that you could touch that would uh, seriously piss off President Putin. That's right. And that's what we have to do is, is, is expose him. We've got to depance him. I think that's the, happening. Uh, I, I think that what's happening right now with all these banks sanctioning the oligarchs, the next, you know, step yeah. one is proclaiming, okay, oligarchs aren't well, Russian oligarchs aren't welcome here. American oligarchs are fine, but not Russian oligarchs. But then step right. two is going to be the word leaking out that, oh, this oligarch had this much money in this place. This oligarch had this much money. You know, this oligarch owns six square blocks of Chicago or whatever, you know, or how many of Donald right. Trump's apartments. Yeah. You know, as we start getting the, as it goes to the macro to the micro, as we start getting the details, it's going to start getting real for people because, you know, you always need a for example for somebody to truly understand what's going on. And I think that's coming, Bruce. I really do. I think, I think you're I think absolutely so. right. I, I believe you. Our book today is Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster by Adam Higginbotham. This is from the prologue. Saturday, April 26, 1986, 4.16 p.m., Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station, Ukraine. Senior Lieutenant Alexander Logachev loved radiation the way other men loved their wives. Tall and good-looking, 26 years old, with close-cropped dark hair and ice-blue eyes, 
Logoshev had joined the Soviet Army when he was still a boy. They had trained him well. The instructors from the military academy outside Moscow taught him with lethal poisons and unshielded radiation. He traveled to the testing grounds of Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan and to the desolate East Urals Trace, where the fallout from a clandestine radioactive accident still poisoned the landscape. Eventually, Logachev's training took him even to the remote and forbidden islands of Novaya Zemlya, high in the Arctic Circle, and ground zero for the detonation of the terrible Tsar Bomba, the largest thermonuclear device in history. Now, as the lead radiation reconnaissance officer of the 427th Red Banner Mechanized Regiment of the Kiev District Civil Defense Force, Logoshev knew how to protect himself and his three-man crew from nerve agents, biological weapons, gamma rays, and hot particles by doing their work just as the textbooks dictated, by trusting his dosimetry equipment, and when necessary, reaching for the nuclear, bacterial, and chemical warfare medical kits stored in the cockpit of their armored car. But he also believed that the best protection was psychological. These men who allowed themselves to fear radiation were most at risk. But those who came to love and appreciate its spectral presence, to understand its caprices, could endure even the most intense gamma bar bombardment and emerge as healthy as before. As he sped through the suburbs of Kiev that morning at the head of a, a column of more than 30 vehicles summoned to an emergency at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, Logoshev had every reason to feel confident. The spring air blowing through the hatches of his armored scout car carried the smell of the trees and the freshly cut grass. His men, gathered on the parade ground just the night before for their monthly inspection, were drilled and ready. At his feet, a battery of radiological detection instruments, including a newly installed electronic device twice as sensitive as the old model, murmured softly, revealing nothing unusual in the atmosphere around them. But as they finally approached the plant later that morning, it became clear that something extraordinary had happened. The alarm on the radiation dosimeter first sounded as they passed the concrete signpost marking the perimeter of the power station grounds, and the lieutenant gave orders to stop the vehicle and log their findings. 51 Rochins per hour. If they waited here just 60 minutes, they would all absorb the maximum dose of radiation permitted Soviet troops during wartime. They drove on following the line of high voltage transmission towers that marched toward the horizon in the direction of the power plant. Their readings climbed still further before falling again. Then as the armored car rumbled along the concrete bank of the station's cooling canal, the outline of the fourth unit of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant finally became visible and Logoshev and his crew gazed at it in silence. The roof of the 20-story building had been torn open. Its other upper levels blackened and collapsed into heaps of rubble. They could see shattered panels of ferro-concrete, tumbled blocks of graphite, and here and there the glittering metal casings of fuel assemblies from the core of a nuclear reactor. A cloud of steam drifted from the wreckage into the sunlit sky. Yet they had orders to conduct a full reconnaissance of the plant. Their armored car crawled counterclockwise around the complex at 10 kilometers an hour. Sergeant Vlaskin called out the radiation readings from the new instruments, and Logoshev scribbled them down on a map, hand-drawn on a sheet of parchment paper in ballpoint pen and colored marker. One Rochin per hour, then two, then three. They turned left, and the figures began to rise quickly. 10, 30, 50, 100. 250 Rochins an hour, the sergeant shouted, his eyes widening. Comrade Lieutenant, he began and pointed at the radiometer. Logoshev looked down at the digital readout and felt his scalp prickle with terror. 2,080 Rochins an hour, an impossible number. 
Logoshov struggled to remain calm and remember the textbook to conquer his fear. But his training failed him, and the lieutenant heard himself screaming in panic at the driver, petrified that the vehicle would stall. Why are you going this way, you son of a bee? Are you out of your effing mind? If this thing dies, we'll all be corpses in 15 minutes. Part 1, Chapter 1, The Soviet Prometheus. At the slow beat of approaching rotor blades, black birds rose into the sky, scattering over the frozen meadows and the pearly knots of creeks and ponds, lacing the Pripyat River Basin. Far below, standing knee-deep in snow, his breath lingering in heavy clouds, Viktor Brukhanov awaited the arrival of the nomenklatura from Moscow. When the helicopter touched down, the delegation of ministers and Communist Party officials trudged together over the icy field. The savage cold gnawed at their heavy woolen coats and nipped beneath their tall fur hats. The head of the Ministry of Energy and Electrification of the USSR and senior party bosses from the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine joined Brukhanov at the spot where their audacious new project was to begin. Just 34 years old, clever and ambitious, a dedicated party man, Brukhanov had come to western Ukraine with orders to begin building what would become the greatest nuclear power station on Earth. Midnight in Chernobyl. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You will recall that the reactor that famously melted down back in 1986 was in Ukraine. And Chernobyl is not the only one. There are other nuclear reactors in Ukraine, in fact, 15 of them. Kevin Camps is on the line with us, our old friend. He's the radioactive waste specialist with Beyond Nuclear. Beyondnuclear.org is the website. Beyond Nuclear is also the Twitter handle. Kevin, welcome back to the program. What is the situation with regard to radiation, radioactive waste, and this conflict in Ukraine? It's a very concerning situation. There was a fierce firefight at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant several days ago between Ukrainian National Guard and Russian military. The Russian military took the site relatively quickly and is in control of it. The heavy armor, the tanks, the armored vehicles, the troop movements kicked up radioactive dust in the Chernobyl dead zone with readings close to one millirem per hour, which if a person were to be in that kind of environment for a year, they would get close to a nine rem dose. And that's just external readings. If you were to breathe in, inhale or drink in or eat in, such heavy contamination, it would be even worse. So that's some of what's going on at Chernobyl. It's not just the contamination. There's high-level radioactive waste stored there from the four reactors that operated there. There's the melted-down core in the destroyed Unit 4. There's all kinds of radiological hazard at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the surrounding region. In addition to Chernobyl, two low-level radioactive waste storage sites, one near Kiev and one near Kharkiv, 
have been hit by what appears to be inadvertent Russian military explosives. There's no evidence that it was intentional, but if, you know, indiscriminate fire is hitting low-level radioactive waste storage facilities, that begs the question, what's the difference? So you mentioned there are 15 operational reactors in Ukraine. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, nine are actually operating, which is just insane to be operating atomic reactors in an open warfare situation because a stray missile or shell, let alone intentional, God forbid intentional, um, but just uh, inadvertent explosions at nuclear power plants could uh, start the dominoes to falling. And in addition to all that, with nuclear power in Ukraine, uh, Putin a couple days ago uh, increased the military readiness of the Russian nuclear weapons arsenal something that has not taken place with the Russian Federation since the year 1991 when it was formed. Whoa, whoa. So uh, my understanding, Kevin, is that uh, Ukraine is actually one of the larger sources of uranium for the world, for nuclear power. Um, has, are, are you familiar with Ukraine's power systems? I mean, are they moving to green their power? Or have they... I mean, the, the, all these reactors, I'm assuming, are left over from the Soviet Union? Unfortunately, I mean, despite the best efforts of the Ukrainian anti-nuclear and environmental movements to go green in Ukraine, the government has stuck with its Soviet-era nuclear power system. So Ukraine is one of the most nuclearized electric grids in the world. It's only surpassed by France and Slovakia. So close to 50% of Ukrainian electricity comes from nuclear power plants. And yes, of course, at any time, especially in a war time, you need electricity for the civilian population. And how unfortunate and tragic and scandalous it is that 50% of the electricity in Ukraine is nuclear powered, which just increases the risks dramatically. I mean, it's, it's just insane to operate atomic reactors in an area beset by open warfare. Like but even if say, they're not operating, I mean, they're, they're, they're equally dangerous if they're hit, are they not? Um, yes, I mean, one of the big risks is the high-level radioactive waste storage. Even at mm -hmm. Chernobyl, which, um, you know, the last reactor to operate at Chernobyl shut down in the year 2000, but you have all the high-level radioactive waste, some of which may still be in indoor wet storage pools, which are especially vulnerable. But even the dry cask storage at Chernobyl, due to a Riva of France, a faulty design and faulty construction taken over by Holtec International, both of these companies, Arriva, now called Orano, and Holtec, are active in the United States when it comes to high-level radioactive waste management. They have so screwed up the dry cask storage at Chernobyl that it is flawed to begin with, and then, God forbid, it get hit by an errant shell or missile, which could ignite the high-level radioactive waste. And uh, then it's an exothermic reaction releasing high-level radioactive waste into the environment. Those are- Exothermic reaction is a fancy way of saying an explosion, right? It's a fire that feeds itself. I mean, right. the zirconium metal cladding on the fuel rods is um, ignitable. And once it ignites, good luck trying to put it out, it will feed itself in terms of- It's fuel. like magnesium. That's yeah, right. zirconium burns very hot. In fact, it's in cluster bombs. It's an ingredient in cluster bombs, 
which the Russian military is apparently dropping cluster munitions on right. residential areas as we speak. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. I have a question unrelated to this that I'd been meaning to ask or wanting to ask somebody who might be in a position to know, and I didn't know of anybody, and it occurs to me, it just occurred to me that you may know the answer to this. Germany used to be heavily dependent upon nuclear power. And uh, over the last couple of decades, they have moved away from nuclear power and increased radically their use of solar power and wind power, but also, you know, are heavily dependent upon oil and gas, particularly natural gas, the Nord Stream pipeline and the pipeline through Ukraine on Russia. If this thing goes south, and I mean, you know, 40% of Germany's energy right now is coming from Russia. If this whole thing goes south and Russia cuts them off or they cut Russia off, do they have the ability over the short term on an emergency basis to reactivate any of those nuclear power plants so that the country doesn't brown out? So the German Greens have been anti-nuclear since their founding in the mid-1970s. It took living under the Chernobyl cloud in 1986 to get the Social Democrats there. And it took Fukushima to get the conservatives there, but it's a political consensus in Germany to be anti-nuclear. There's only three reactors left operating in the country, and there is the possibility of keeping them operating past their current shutdown date by the end of this year, which would be the end of nuclear power in Germany if they do shut down. So they could extend. I think they're very leery to, because like I said, a very hard-won anti-nuclear political consensus in that country. Mm -hmm. And these reactors themselves are very old. I think the take-home lesson is the faster that we transition as a world society to renewables like wind and solar and maximized efficiency, the better. We need to go carbon-free and nuclear-free as quickly as we possibly can to save the climate, but also to save ourselves from radiological catastrophes. Yeah, I totally get it. But I, essentially, my question was, there are still nuclear power plants in Germany that are not right now producing electricity. Were they de decommissioned in a way that they cannot be brought back online, or have they been essentially paused? Did they just drop the fuel rods in, or the, car the carbon rods in to, you know, to, to stop the reactions, or have they started disassembling those? I think... To the best of my knowledge, the only reactors that could continue operating after 2022 in Germany are the three that are still operating. Mm -hmm. It would be very difficult to bring any of the other 20 back that have been shut down, some for many years at this point. Yeah, I get it. Okay, Kevin Camps, beyondnuclear.org is the website. It's also the Twitter handle. Kevin, thanks a lot for dropping by. It's great talking with you. You too, Tom. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and, and amen. No nukes, go green. It's being reported now that uh, Putin has sent 400 mercenaries out of Africa into Kiev to assassinate Zelensky. This is the Tom Hartman program. I'll give you the details on that too on the other side of this break. The other story that I wanted to share with you before we continue, this is very troubling. You know how Eric Prince runs Blackwater? You know, it's a uh, mercenary army, an army for hire. Blackwater went into Iraq. We paid for them to go into Iraq and, and slaughtered civilians. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, in fact, that led to them changing the name of the organization. Well, there's a Russian equivalent of Blackwater. It's called the Wagner Group. You know, a nice Anglo-sounding name, but it's a Russian company. And they have mercenaries literally all around the world who are basically assassination squads. 
And they just flew, according to this report from the Daily Mail, uh, you can read it over at dailymail.co.uk. The headline, Kremlin sends more than 400 mercenaries into Kyiv to assassinate President Zelensky. And it's just very straightforward. A private militia known as the Wagner Group allegedly has orders from Vladimir Putin to take out Zelensky and 23 other government figures to allow Moscow to take over its Eastern European neighbor. According to the Times, I believe that would be the New York Times, the army for hire run by oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin, a close ally of the Russian president who is often dubbed Putin's chef because they're so together so often, was flown in five weeks ago and has been offered a huge sum for the mission. The highly trained operatives are said to be waiting for the green light from the Kremlin to pounce with their hit list, including Ukraine's prime minister, the entire cabinet, the mayor of Kiev, and his brother, Valdemir, both boxing champions who have become iconic figures on the front lines of the capital. So keep an eye on this one, too. It just keeps on getting more and more. I don't know morbid is the right word, but it's a tough one. So picking up your phone calls. Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's up? The word morbid. Yeah. War is morbid. And the sooner Putin is removed from the sphere of influence, the less morbid it is. I wonder if, the, if the word morbid, go, if the root word for morbid is some word that includes death, you know? Well, in, yeah, in Latin uh, or Greek. I wouldn't want to be hung up on the word morbid. I just, I'm just saying, yeah. war is morbid, and and as soon as this clown that's lost his mind is removed from influence, the better off the world will be. It was that way with Trump. We couldn't get him removed. Uh, there's a serious problem at hand in that the world is held hostage by the nuclear industry, digging up uranium and making stuff out of it. It's never been a good thing to do, and I think that is guarded by the petro-monopoly that we all suffer from. These people coming from Africa, you say, to assassinate Ukrainian leadership. I say, what's going on to counteract that? At the moment, of course, we wouldn't hear about it, but the idea that there's nothing going on is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I get it, Bob. My understanding is, thank you for the call, my understanding is that uh, Zelensky's people are are looking for these folks. They're they're scouring Kiev for these folks. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaugh, Chase Spross, and the folks who run our uh, chat room over on YouTube, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carta Verde. Thank you to you all. And thank you for listening and watching our program. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 